The next series of cases was presented to Drs. Mole and O, beginning with a case from Dr. Alan Nieder. This is an 81-year-old gentleman who I've just recently started seeing. thought it was a pretty interesting case. He comes in to see me because his PSA has been rising rather rapidly over the past year or two. But importantly, he had undergone a radical prostatectomy in 1987, so 20 years ago. I don't have any information regarding his pathology or what his preoperative characteristics were. He's a uh, very sophisticated guy. He's a widower. The reason he came to see me was he's now moved to Florida. He hasn't seen a urologist for a couple of years. But his PSA apparently about two, three years ago was two, and then it had slowly been rising. It was six about nine months ago, and then most recently is about 12. So it had about a nine-month doubling time. The guy is otherwise relatively healthy. He's a very active guy. He does have pretty significant side effects related to his original surgery. He had complete erectile dysfunction from his original surgery. He's actually had pretty significant incontinence, which isn't really a major bother for him. He wears a couple pads a day, really never bothered him at all. When he came in to see me, his internist had referred him to me. This gentleman, he'd done his reading. He knew what was going on, and he was obviously very concerned now that his PSA had doubled in about nine months, and it was over 10, it was 12. Before you say what you did, maybe we can just kind of complete the presentation. Anything else about his situation you think is relevant in terms of making a decision? I examined him. You know, his exam was essentially normal, except for some incontinence he had had and he emptied his bladder well. I ended his prostatic or digital rectal exam, really didn't reveal any abnormalities, and he was otherwise feeling fine, but he was obviously anxious, and that was his main issue. Was he pretty well informed about prostate cancer? Oh, yeah, he's a very sophisticated guy. Yeah, he'd done his reading. He knew what was going on. I mean, I obviously was sort of intrigued just since a 20-year lag time I thought was pretty big outlier. I mean, you don't typically see that too often. I haven't seen too many patients who recur that far out. I got him a bone scan and a CT scan, both of which were negative for any obvious metastatic disease. And then, you know, I had a long discussion with him regarding sort of his diagnosis, what I thought would be the trend of what's going to continue on, and then what are the different options. Judd, what do you think about this very unusual case, and how do you think you'd approach it? It is a very interesting case. Just a couple of comments. I think from a urologic surgery standpoint, a radical prostatectomy in 2007 is very dissimilar from a radical prostatectomy 20 years ago. And I can think back, well, at 87, I was graduating as a chief resident, so I've been in practice now for 20 years. And number one, even among higher volume surgeons, I think it's relative. In that era, I was at Walter Reed. We thought we were doing quite a few radical prostatectomies in 87, but honestly, compared to the huge increased number of guys we've seen over the last decade, it's not even close. And so experience of surgeons has changed dramatically compared to the last 20 years. Uh, The comments on total erectile dysfunction and significant incontinence, I would say that certainly in experienced hands with the types of patients we're seeing today, the incontinence rate truly has gotten much less than it was 20 years ago. That's a point, and I think that's important to make for a, you know, urologic surgeons to make to other members of the multidisciplinary team, including medical oncologists and radiation oncologists. Number two, we don't know what his pre-op characteristics were. However, obviously in that era, patients likely had more locally advanced disease, so we might assume he had worse disease, but we don't know. 
Whether he had a nerve spraying procedure or not, we don't know. I mean, he has total erectile dysfunction. And again, I would say that a nerve spraying prostatectomy circa 1987, even though some people thought they could do it and maybe a few people could, it really wasn't anything like what a true nerve spraying surgery would be today. When you talk about the difference between surgery now and then, is it mainly in less morbidity and complications or also better cancer surgery? Both. I think it's better cancer surgery mainly because the disease is being caught generally earlier. On the other hand, certain surgeons do have better, you know, taking extra margins and so forth, but I think it's primarily due to better stage of the patients when they're treated. But the morbidity is so much different. For example, today's radical prostatectomy in experienced hands is a one and a half to two hour operation. If I look at our experience at our institution, transfusion rate, even for a minimally invasive open surgery, is down to less than 10% overall and less than 5% in some of my more experienced surgeons. Again, it's a key message to get across to the listeners who may not be urologists that today's radical prostatectomy is not your father's radical prostatectomy. Chuck, can I ask a question about that and just in terms of the data with regard to how incontinence changes over time? So considering that the surgery may have been different 20 years ago, what's the natural history of a post-prostatectomy patient in terms of incontinence? I don't know if this patient has a history of worsening incontinence over the years or whether it's been relatively uh, stable. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously that was something I was concerned about. Did he have a late stricture or anything like that? But no, he had just sort of been petering along, you know, so to speak. Mild, yeah, so to speak, with mild <laughs> dribbling and, you know, really wasn't a major issue for him. And I subsequently had a discussion with him about that, you know, because there are different treatment options that I discussed with him. He really wasn't all that bothered. He'd been doing fine for so long and it wasn't a major issue. Dr. O brings up a good point. And actually, we've looked at that recently. We haven't published it yet. But when I moved to Duke, we inherited the Paulson Perineal database, which is a rich database of a large number of radical perineal prostatectomies done in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And we've actually looked at that. Generally, men who regain their continence have not deteriorated their continence just by age alone. The only groups that you do see deteriorate, obviously, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or a urethral stricture will cause potentially some patients to go from continence to incontinence. But generally, again, these guys, of course, even today, patients who are selected for radical prostatectomy in regardless of what era tend to be the cream of the crop. And if they have a good outcome, have good surgery, get their continence back, you know, for the most part, so far we've been following them. They've been still maintaining pretty good health and have maintained their continence. William, what about the issue of this delayed recurrence? You know, we have a lot more sensitivity to this issue in breast cancer. We now are aware that in ER-positive breast cancer, which is analogous, I think, to all of prostate cancer, that as many recurrences occur after five years as before five years. What do we know about late recurrences in prostate cancer? I think that's a good question, and I think very little is actually known about kind of the natural history of recurrent cancer. Many of these patients, as you know, in the PSA era are treated as soon as there is some sign of recurrence with a rising PSA. It would have probably been very hard for this man not to have, as his PSA is rising now, not to want to intervene. And the question is, I might first ask, what was his PSA history going back as far as possible? I don't know if you have any of that other data. I have it going back about three years. And it was undetectable for many years before that. As far as I know, as far as what he recalled, it was two about three years ago. And the next time they checked, maybe nine months, a year later, it was three. 
then four, then it was six about nine months ago prior to me seeing him. And then when he saw me, it was 12. But there was no non-detectable PSA in these last few years. So we don't know when or was there. I don't know. He said his PSA had been fine for a long time and then they had rechecked it and then they noticed it too. So I don't know how long the window was when it wasn't checked. In general, of course, an undetectable PSA, the longer the PSA is undetectable after prostatectomy, the better the outcome should be. But the question really becomes whether the biology changes over a 15, 20, 25-year period. And the fact is there's not a lot of patients who have this pattern. The type of analogy that I sometimes think about, although it's not really exactly relevant to this situation, is is the watchful waiting cohorts that we saw in Scandinavia where people were watched with what was considered to be indolent disease, untreated, so a different population, 10, 15, and then even up to beyond 15 years, they seem to have a continued indolent course. But at 20 years, some of those patients developed a more aggressive biology. And not all of the patients, many of them had already died, or some of them continued to have relatively indolent disease. And the question is, is this patient's PSA curve reflecting a future with potentially more aggressive cancer, or is this something that may remain indolent for a very long time? That's one of the issues. We all rely on PSA doubling time, but as we've talked about many times in different forums, the problem is doubling time calculation continues to be dependent very much on how many numbers you use. If you collected all of this patient's undetectable or very low PSAs going back 15, 20 years, that's going to have an effect on the actual calculation of doubling time. If you use just the last three that you have, the doubling time is going to appear to be much more rapid. So I think that these are methodologic issues that we haven't really fully addressed. I think that said, we would be concerned that this patient might have the potential, since he seems to be otherwise pretty healthy, that he might have progressive metastatic cancer, but not necessarily for the next five to 10 years. It's still hard to predict. Just to follow up on a comment, you know, the issue of how to calculate PSA doubling time. In practice, what I'll do sometimes, or if I have a medical student or resident clinic, I'll say, okay, get online, let's Google PSA doubling time calculator. So you do that, and you'll get a number of them. And if you, for example, one at the University of New Mexico, of all places, that you can use, and you're absolutely right, if you just plug in the last three or four PSA values with the dates, versus taking the time to plug in a whole slew of them, you'll get a different PSA doubling time number. And so those are issues we haven't worked out. And interestingly, some of the calculators actually give slightly numbers. I've had a resident test this. It all depends on what back-end statistics they use. And that hasn't even been completely resolved. So what would you be thinking about, Judd, in terms of management at this point? Well, I was listening intently, and I would say that really it boils down to four options. you got a guy, a healthy 81-year-old with a PSA of about 12, and 20 years out from a radical prostatectomy. One option would be continued watchful waiting, although it's probably not going to be too appealing to him, although you may have been able to talk him into it in the short time to get a better handle on PSA doubling time. One could initiate traditional hormonal therapy with either an LHRH alone or a complete hormonal therapy. Or what I like in a lot of these men to avoid side effects is peripheral hormonal therapy with either bicalutamide monotherapy or flutamide and finasteride or bicalutamide and finasteride or some type of clinical trial. Unfortunately, at our institution right now, I wish we did, but we don't have a current clinical trial for someone like this with PSA recurrence. 
And then the fifth option, which I don't think is a good option, would be salvage radiation to the prostate bed because the PSA is too high. Although I would be very interested to hear if that was addressed in your counseling of him and how you handled that. I want to ask William first how he would sort through the options, and then we'll hear about what actually happened with the discussion. I'd agree with Judd that those are the four major options. I generally wouldn't necessarily address salvage radiotherapy in a patient at this juncture with this PSA because it's unlikely to have a long-term effect. I think given his age and the relatively kind of moderate doubling time without a lot of values, I'd probably watch a guy like this. I wouldn't necessarily rush into offer him hormonal therapy, but I think it's something that you have to discuss. And the reason I say this is that there continues to be a really no randomized data that tells us exactly what the right time is from the PSA perspective to intervene with androgen deprivation or peripheral androgen blockade. And if he feels otherwise very well, depending on his anxiety level, I think the real issue is what are the gains with hormonal therapy versus the losses? We know more and more about some of the risks of hormonal therapy in terms of its effects, not only on traditional things like hot flashes, quality of life, loss of libido, but also recently some of these issues regarding cardiovascular toxicity have come to the fore. And I think Mm -hmm. in an 81-year-old man, if there's a possibility that you might accelerate a cardiovascular event, I think it has to be part of the thinking process. Judd, quote, moderate doubling time, nine months. How do you stack nine months up compared to, say, 18 months and three months in your own sort of gestalt way? It's not as bad as three months, and it's not as good as 18 months, but the previous retrospective work we had done using the CPDR military database suggested that in men who had a PSA doubling time less than 12 months or high-grade Gleason score in their radical specimen, that at least early hormonal therapy delayed clinical metastasis. That's the good news. The bad news is, and again, I agree with William, that that was not randomized and kind of arbitrary when we defined early hormonal therapy. In that study, arbitrarily, it was defined as getting the hormone started before the PSA went above either 5 or 10 in the different analyses. And both analyses found that starting at earlier delayed clinical metastasis, but we don't know if it's going to impact their survival. You know, some of the critical issues we want to try to get your take as well as the fact that we got it in the first session. So I want to just throw out, I think, a really common question relevant to what you just said, Judd, which is in a patient with a slow doubling time, let's say 18 months or a couple years, is there an absolute level that you'll treat just based on the level? And what is it? No, there is no absolute level. I think that fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how much time you have in clinic and how backed up you are in that individual clinic, it just takes time. You have to sit and talk to these patients or somehow provide them some type of educational materials to have the patients get a sense of risk assessing their particular case. This particular gentleman is an 81-year-old sophisticated person. And what I do in my practice, we have a PSA recurrence educational packet that we put together that has selected reprints about various treatment options. And it also has a very nice US2 International, which is the Prostate Cancer Support Group, has a very nice monograph that they put together on biochemical recurrence that you can get from their headquarters in Chicago. And we've gotten some of those and put that in the educational packet for patients. William, is there an absolute level where you'll treat even with a slow doubling time? No, no cutoff. You could ask investigators, what's the highest PSA they've ever allowed in a non-metastatic patient whose PSA is rising? And I guess the answer is somewhere in the 100 range. I have had patients who've come in 
For example, I have a physician who interestingly had a similar story. He had surgery many years ago, and then he just dropped out. He didn't get any PSAs. And when he came back into the system, his PSA was about 500, and he was asymptomatic. He actually had lymph node metastases, but they were asymptomatic. And he was in his early 90s, and we continued to monitor him. But within about a year, he developed bone metastases, still asymptomatic. I just saw him last week. And I recommended hormonal therapy now that he has bone metastasis, even though he's asymptomatic because he's a very vigorous 92-year-old man. I can't say that outside of that unusual circumstance that I have many patients whose PSAs are over 100, but it's not a cutoff. It's more that by a certain point, there's a sense that I have that things are somehow changing. The PSA is rising more quickly. Their anxiety levels are Mm -hmm. going up. Maybe a little bit of my anxiety level is going up. And it's one of those things, as I think Judd has pointed out, that you try to incorporate the whole picture. To me, the reason I said that I might wait in this gentleman before making a kind of an, an immediate decision to start hormones is really his age. Because he's 81, if he was 61, I think I would agree with a nine-month doubling time. The PSA cutoffs of Judd's work and other people have shown that 10 to 20 is a reasonable range to start hormonal therapy. And I would either do ADT in most younger men or consider peripheral androgen blockade in either older men or in men who are very motivated to try to avoid some of the side effects of castration. The other thing I do counsel them about is about dietary changes. As you know, there was a small study at UCLA about pomegranate juice. If this guy's PSA was, let's say, a little bit lower than 10, and let's say he came in when his PSA was 6, and he was anxious, but he didn't really want to go on hormonal therapy, what can you tell these people outside of a clinical trial? Well, there was a small randomized study at UCLA that looked at 8 ounces of pomegranate juice. This was not a placebo-controlled study, although they're doing one now, and it showed that they could slow the doubling time. But we know from studies we've done in the rising PSA setting, you have to be very careful. We did a study of salicoxib in this setting, and salicoxib doubled the doubling time, doubled the doubling time in 40% of the patients on our study. But we had a control arm, and placebo doubled the doubling time in 20%. Placebo is good stuff. Placebo really does work. I don't know, something about coming to see the doctor, driving into Boston, trying to park your car, whatever it was, whatever the goodwill that somehow slowed their PSA doubling time, a lot of them may change their diet or other things that might have a positive effect. What's in the pomegranate juice? Well, it's purported to have the highest concentration of antioxidants, and I think... You have to be careful. Pomegranate juice is also packed with sugar. You know, so you tell your diabetic patient to start drinking pomegranate juice, and suddenly their hemoglobin A1Cs are going through the roof. But I have counseled patients to think about not just pomegranate juice, but kind of dietary change in general, you know, weight loss, exercise, low-fat diets. I'll refer them to certain kind of popular literature. Judd, we're getting pretty strong evidence now on breast and colon cancer that diet, specifically lower fat, and exercise might decrease relapse rate. Not getting the disease, but relapse rate. What do we know about that in prostate cancer? Well, we're starting to get some data there. I I mean, we're just scratching the surface in prostate, but right now, to my knowledge, the best data is on body mass index and higher body mass index or obesity levels seem to be associated with higher levels of recurrence after surgery and radiation. Again, I agree with everything William has said about trying to support some of these dietary interventions. Obviously, caution, though, because we really don't have a lot of evidence basis for some of the things. Obviously, at our institution, there's a lot of work in flaxseed and flaxseed supplementation. Wendy DeMarc is one of our faculty members who's a nutritionist, was presented this year at ASCO looking at our pre-prostatectomy model, where flaxseed was administered prior to radical prostatectomy 
compared to a control group, and we can show that a flaxseed diet can decrease the proliferation rate of prostate cancer. Now, whether that's going to have any influence on a guy like this with a rising PSA, but at least we're starting to get some interesting nutritional studies with biological endpoints to try to get at this in prostate cancer. Again, what's in flaxseed? I wish I knew. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe combination therapy with flaxseed and pomegranate trees. You know, actually, and and in fact, I'm sure when Wendy listens to this, she's going to probably yell at me. But, you know, there is some interesting basic science work with the chemicals in flaxseed that might suggest a preventive effect on malignancies. So, Dr. Nieder, what happened with the patient? Just like most people said, I mean, we ended up having a long discussion with him. I actually also referred him to an oncologist, medical oncologist, who he sort of requested as well. My sort of gestalt feeling for this gentleman was that while he probably was going to end up on hormonal therapy sometime in the near future, he didn't necessarily need to be on it immediately for his PSA at 12. You know, I felt comfortable watching him at least for a while, whether it's another six months or nine months or a year. But he was reasonably anxious enough and, again, pretty sophisticated guy. You know, his question was, well, I'm not going to start it now. I'm going to end up starting it in six months. Why don't I just start it now? You know, it was hard to really argue against. The medical ecologist ended up agreeing. You know, he thought it was not unreasonable to start him on an LHRH agonist, which we did. And he's been on it for three months. I think he just got his second dose. His PSA came down to undetectable. He actually has tolerated it very well. It's not had any significant hot flashes or side effects. We'll just wait and see. Is he getting bicalutamide also or just the LHR? No, he got it initially for, I think, a two-week period, and that was it. We didn't put him on combined blockade. What about MAB? Judd, there was a paper just published in the JCO and ASCO consensus statement. What was your take on that? in terms of that particular issue? Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised. Previously, the American Society for Clinical Oncology was either, I guess, neutral or possibly a little bit opposed to combined hormonal therapy because of lack of compelling evidence. But there was a recent consensus review article in the last month or two, I can't remember the exact issue, but suggests now that complete hormonal therapy should be generally offered to patients. And I've tended to be an advocate for complete hormonal therapy. Again, previously in my career in the military, the oral antiandrogens were available to our patient population on formulary. So I was never brought up with this cost consideration issue. And so we always tended to give the patients the benefit of the doubt, you know, in a military or VA setting. And when I transferred then to the private setting about three years ago, you know, I just kind of stuck in that practice mode. And Most patients in the last year or two have had prescription drug plans, at least the ones that I've seen, that have covered most of the cost of the oral medications. Occasionally, we'll come across a patient who does not have any type of prescription drug coverage, and it's a problem there. And it's unfortunate, in my practice, some of the patients who, in my opinion, might need it the most, lower socioeconomic, say, for example, African-American patient with pretty bad prostate cancer, with, say, Medicare with no supplement, those are the challenges because I'd like to be aggressive with them, but they just cannot afford the pills. What was your take on that ASCO paper, William? It's interesting, you know, you kind of read into the wording and how they, I'm sure they sit around for hours trying to decide how to word these things. You can maybe interpret that in different ways. How did you interpret it, and how do you approach this issue? Well, I think consensus statements can only be based on the available data, and that's what they're hamstrung by because, as we know, for example, in this patient's situation, there is no data at all that describes whether or not 
combined androgen blockade is any better than LHRH monotherapy because all of the studies so far have been done in metastatic disease or locally advanced disease. So we're extrapolating. And in that setting, I think the biggest surprise from that consensus paper really was that with data that's come out from randomized trials about the toxicities of hormonal therapy and metastatic disease. They thought that the risks of hormonal therapy, including the increased risk of cardiovascular disease, was potentially counterbalanced by any benefit in terms of survival. And that, again, gets more, I think, to the weaknesses of the data sets that we have and what is really truly a moving population. So in my mind, it doesn't have a great deal of relevance to this particular patient because we still do not know how this particular patient's risk versus benefits balance, for example, with the addition of an antiandrogen. My practice in this setting is not to use routine CAB, despite some of these recent comments, and I tend to still use a month of antiandrogen to block the potential of a testosterone flare, but that's done also without data. That's done more from the point of view of a theoretical than an actual risk that's been ever been demonstrated in a patient like this. Are you planning to stop it at some point? What's your general practice in terms of an asymptomatic guy like this? PSA, let's say, plummets as you might expect it to. What's your plan for him in the coming six months, year? We'd actually discuss that, you know, the continued hormonal ablation versus intermittent therapy. You know, I told him essentially at this point, obviously it's early to see. I would probably be interested in giving him probably nine months to a year as his PSA remains undetectable, hopefully, which I assume it will. And then we could rediscuss the issue. And if he was, you know, motivated one way or the other to stop it and just wait and see, being that he was obviously older. How would you answer that question, William? I think it does depend on the patients, as it was in this situation, the decision to start. Some people do tolerate hormonal therapy remarkably well and mm-hmm. are not at all interested in stopping it. Mm-hmm. And I would not push that person to stop. They're very happy to see their PSAs at zero. Other people are miserable, and they're very easy to say, well, let's give you a break, especially if you see that PSA response. So I look at their symptoms. I look at the PSA curve. And I think a very reasonable decision is, you know, somewhere around 9 to 12 months to decide whether or not a brief break is warranted. Again, the data is ongoing. There are two large randomized trials from Europe that have looked at this question of intermittent hormonal therapy, but only in metastatic disease. So again, not in this population. But I personally think it's a reasonable option for somebody who's not tolerating hormones well. Judd, at age 81, what's the chance that if you do stop therapy, his testosterone is going to bounce back? That's a great question. In fact, I was just going to ask if you had done a baseline testosterone level on him before you initiated LHRH therapy. Um, I did not. And I can't criticize you for that because it's, if you look at any kind of practice guidelines, I don't believe it's part of any practice guidelines. From an academic standpoint, I think it's interesting to do to see if it's in the future is going to be a prognostic factor. Your theory is, is if the guy has a very low testosterone level starting it, he might have a shortened response to hormonal therapy. And also, if he has a low testosterone level and small testicles, then if you put him on LHRH for a year or two, he may not bounce back. Small testicles? On well, that's been... A physical you, exam? Yeah, if you look at some of the studies that have been done of intermittent hormonal therapy, and we know this from the urologic literature, that... Most people don't do it, but you can use a goniometer and measure the testicle sizes. And the old-time urologist, that was basically a poor man's testosterone. It didn't correlate exactly, but the gestalt is elderly patient, shrunken small testicles, put the patient on LHRH, and they may not bounce back. At least that's anecdotally what urologists tend to think. To answer your question, 
I don't know. If you look in general, some of the studies that have been done in younger patients, after the last LHRH injection, it can take about seven months for the testosterone to get back up to above castrate levels. Goniam, do you have one of those in your place? I actually do. <laughs> really? Do you, well, can you see you know, the size go up and down based as you treat patients? Well, it's basically a string of beads. It's like you could kind of, you know, when the kids see it, they like to wear them around their neck, you know, <laughs> as a, as a uh, but, uh, <laughs> but little do they know. <laughs> little do they know. <laughs> but, uh, and, and actually, most of the time we use it in practice in pediatric urology and infertility and impotence clinics. And most people in prostate cancer don't use it, but ideally it would not be a bad idea to do that. Interesting. 